learn more by struggling on hard problems. Suppose you're learning a skill like algebra, programming, or art. Now consider two different strategies for studying it. First, examples first. Before you try anything on your own, study some examples of how other people solve similar problems first. Two, before looking at any examples, see if you can solve the problem on your own. And if you fail or you don't get very far, only then see how the teacher does it. Which strategy works better? Although this sounds like a simple question, it's actually a hotly debated one. Entire books have been written with researchers on each side arguing about which works better. I'm sure, like me, you have some intuitions about this too. After all, you've spent a lot of time learning things. Which do you think would work better? Examples first. The power of direct instruction. The intuition behind seeing examples first is obvious. Nearly every problem is easier if someone shows you how to solve it first. Two major bodies of research back this up. The first is direct instruction. This is an instructional method developed by Siegfried Engelmann and others. It works by breaking complex skills into atomic components and carefully illustrating them with examples before giving students lots and lots of practice on those pieces. The assumption is that when students fail to learn, the problem is usually with the lesson, not the student. Studies of direct instruction are largely positive. Project follow-through, the largest ever educational experiment performed in the United States, compared various teaching programs and found that direct instruction performed best. Since then, countless studies find direct instruction improves student performance, particularly for weaker students. In John Hades' review of meta-analytic experiments in educational psychology, he found that the effect sizes for the benefits of direct instruction were among the largest of those studied, another point in favor of this approach. The other major body of evidence for this approach is cognitive load theory, which I reviewed in the past on the blog. Now, this research finds that novices who studied worked examples tend to do better on later tests, including tests designed to test transfer knowledge more broadly than those who solved the exact same problems instead. The value of examples first is strongest in the beginning phase of learning. As students gain more experience, they benefit more and more from practicing on their own. This expertise reversal effect implies that what works best depends highly on the student's prior experience. For this reason, strategies like direct instruction switch from giving examples to giving practice as classes move on. Problems first. Can failure be productive? Now, the intuition behind solving problems first is also obvious. How can you learn to solve problems if you're always told exactly how to do it first? Researcher Manu Kapoor argues that students learn better if they first experience productive failure. The idea here is to have students work in groups on a difficult problem. Not knowing how to solve it, they will most likely fail. Now, after this experience, they are shown examples and instruction and given a chance to try again. Kapoor's research finds that productive failure tends to be beneficial in a range of experiments. Along similar lines, Dean Schwartz and John Bransford argue for students to try to invent a solution before being told the best approach. They argue that such experiences foster greater transfer through preparation for future learning. Now, theoretically, there are a few reasons why we might suspect a problem's first approach works better in some cases. First, activation of prior knowledge. If you do have some knowledge of how to solve the problem already, a problem-solving episode will force you to try to retrieve it. This may make it easier to integrate a taught solution later. Second, conceptual understanding. 
Seeing a problem situation first may make it easier to understand the kinds of situations where the solution applies, and this may assist on later transfer to similar problems in different contexts. Finally, motivation and engagement. Students might just tune out if they're given worked examples to study. In contrast, it's not possible to solve a problem and not be cognitively engaged with the material. Active learning has benefits in controlling and guiding attention. Which side is right? Does it even matter? I've read way too much material covering this debate, so I can say with confidence that I have no idea which side is right. However, I want to stress that I think the winner of the debate here matters a little bit less than some might believe. For starters, it's abundantly clear that both practice and instruction are necessary for effective learning. Advocates of direct instruction make ample room for practice after seeing examples. Studies that support a problem-solving first approach all require that the student is eventually shown the right answer. Thus, we can immediately rule out extremes. Pure discovery learning, where students aren't ever shown instructions or examples, fails miserably. In a classic example, students who spent over 200 hours on logo programming practice without instruction still did poorly on relatively simple problems. Psychologist and researcher Richard Meyer argues in light of these and other notorious failures that there should be a three strikes rule against unguided learning. Similarly, learning requires practice. As psychologists Herbert Simon, John Anderson, and Lynn Rader remark, quote, nothing flies more in the face of the last 20 years of research than the assertion that practice is bad. So regardless of whether the correct procedure is to first see an example, then do practice, or whether it is to first attempt a solution and then see the example, both ingredients are necessary. We can rule out extremes even if researchers are still debating the best sequencing. Designing your practice loop. Recently, I shared a post where I argued for a loop of see, do, and feedback as the backbone behind any learning strategy. I got a few objections from readers who argued that when you see the examples before you make an attempt, you short-circuit the struggle involved in solving hard problems. Isn't such struggle necessary for learning? Well, the difference between see-do feedback and do-see feedback, however, might not be so significant. If the process is indeed a loop, you're always cycling back and forth between seeing examples and trying it for yourself. The timing and sequencing are all things you can tweak as you go along. Early on, when you have no idea how to do anything, struggle may help you get a sense of the problem, but you're unlikely to arrive at the best answer spontaneously. In that case, difficulty can become undesirable. Even if you can solve the correct problem on your own, work in cognitive load theory suggests that time spent studying the correct example is still beneficial as it lets you better appreciate the pattern for a solution. Later, as the material gets easier and you become more comfortable with it, there's increasing benefits to leaning on problem solving. You already have more knowledge in your head, so you get the benefits of trying to retrieve that knowledge when formulating a solution. You also build fluency in the component skills, which can only be acquired through practice. Learning supply and demand. I think the constellation of research I've reviewed here supports the idea that there are two separate points of difficulty in learning. First, failures of instruction. When instruction is omitted or insufficient, students struggle. Two, failures of initiative. Without active engagement by the student, lessons may be wasted. I like to imagine this as a meeting of supply and demand. Learning happens when there's sufficient supply of knowledge to make it possible to acquire skills. At the same time, if there's no pressure to use that knowledge, learning is often superficial. Problems of the first kind come when you're trying to wing it. 
when attempting to find reasonable solutions to problems when you don't really feel like you have the right training. In those cases, seeking out good mentors, peers, or even structured classes can be powerful if your aim is more than just good enough for right now. Problems of the second kind come when you consume videos or articles and never actually use them. Collecting cookbooks instead of making meals, buying a phrase book rather than speaking a language, scrolling through YouTube instead of doing the real thing. The best thing you can do to improve your learning is to make sure you have all three ingredients of instruction, practice, and feedback. If you're lacking one of these, ask yourself how you could seek it out and structure it into the efforts you're making to get better. Only when you have access to all of them does it make sense to start fine-tuning the sequence. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.